Welcome to the Mocha SMC podcast. I'm Aisha. And I'm Hera. And we are the Mocha SMCs. So we're two Black single mothers by choice who are working to unpack all of the things surrounding this non-traditional path. And in this episode, as an SMC, we know that there are various ways to motherhood. Today, we're going to discuss becoming a mother um, via adoption, becoming an SMC via adoption. All right. So today, along with Hera, we have two guests. We have Angela and Michelle. Angela is a software sales executive living in the Northeast as an SMC via domestic infant adoption to a five-year-old son who's her joy and is currently considering welcoming a second child. And we also have Michelle, who's an adoption attorney in the Chicago area and also an SMC by adoption. And we'll be speaking with us today from the legal side of adoption, drawing from her vast experience. All right. So just a disclaimer that adoption laws can vary state to state. So make sure that you consult an adoption attorney in your state if this is your path. All right. So I'm going to ask Angela and Michelle to introduce themselves. Um, We'll start with Angela. Hi, everyone. Um, Thank you so much for uh, inviting us to um, be guests on the podcast this evening. And uh, as Aisha said, I am a mother to a five-year-old son via adoption. And I'm very passionate about um, trying to help other folks, particularly Mocha SMCs who are pursuing this path. So I'm glad to be here uh, and to be a resource to others. All right. Well, thank Thank you, you, Angela. Angela. And Michelle, hello. Hi, how are you today? Um, I'm happy to be here too. I am an adoption attorney. I have been an adoption attorney for about three decades now. I also do adoption education, speak at a lot of conferences and camps, and I'm a single mom by choice. My son is 11 years old and I am a proud boy mom. (laughs) Well, welcome and thank you both for being here today. Okay, so Um, When I was trying for my second child, so this is, I had um, uh, considered almost every aspect of uh, becoming uh, an SMC for a second time. When I was trying for my daughter, I explored um, adoption, I explored um, adoption through foster care. And, um, and when I say I explored, I actually talked to SMCs who had, uh, who had uh, done the um, infant adoption, and also who had done adoption through foster care. And I actually sat with my my thoughts and that research for a bit. And I did have some questions at the time. Um, And so um, as part of this conversation, I'll talk a little bit about, you know, the questions that I had, as um, both Angela and Michelle will will go ahead and share. And Hera, I think, considered adoption um, for a time as well. And so I considered it. And then Hera, you know, did you consider adoption um, at all? Yeah. So for the before, prior to my first two uh, via SMC path, um, I didn't actually go too far down the adoption path. Um, But about a year ago, my older daughter, this is after my youngest was born, uh, out of the blue was like, there's another child out there who should be in our family. And I was like, uh okay and she was like how are we going to find them and this seemed to kind of sort of come out of nowhere but it seemed like she was in her own kid words telling me that she was like we should adopt right mm-hmm. um because she definitely didn't say that i was going to have this baby like uh 
but but we were going to find the baby. Okay. Um, and so it's certainly something that I think could be in our future as a family. And it's something that I certainly have a lot of questions surrounding, um, you know, the idea of adopting after after you've already started your family and what that might look like. So I'm super excited to have you guys here today because I know one of the things that I considered in the beginning when I sort of thought about the idea of adoption, it seemed very daunting because it's, you know, it's like all these legal things you have to consider. And then I also had this feeling of like worry about rejection. I was like, you know, what if, what if I like get on one of these lists and like nobody wants me? (laughs) Um, And so I thought that was, that was sort of what made it an option that was um, hard and not as approachable. So I'm really grateful that you guys are here to share with us, kind of help SMCs navigate this. So it seems like a more approachable option and something that's like a little bit less scary. So, so could we start kind of from the beginning um, and just kind of go through the adoption process um, in general, and then we get into some specifics because I know similar to Hera, um, Hera, I was daunted by, you know, the home study and, you know, just the, the adoption classes and just kind of starting that process was overwhelming. So can you take us through, um, let's see, Michelle or Angela, whichever one of you wants to jump in. Okay, well, I'll start with the basics. So the first thing is, usually for most people, you've got to figure out which route you want to go. And there are basically three distinct routes, right? So you have domestic infant adoption, which is basically getting a newborn, or you can go through the foster care route, mm-hmm. um, which is using, you know, different uh, states call it by different names. So whatever foster care, child protective services are in your area, or the third option is international adoption. Now, once you start talking about those three areas, then they break down into sub areas. So like with domestic infant adoption, we call it in the um, social media world, we call it DIA for short. Um, You could have an agency adoption. You can have an adoption through a lawyer. You can have an adoption, what we call agency assisted, where like you found your match somewhere else, you know, whether it's through your pastor, your doctor, a friend of a friend, you happen to be talking to um, someone in a bar that you want to adopt. And, you know, the person says, oh, I know someone who's, you know, pregnant and wants to place. Yes, this is a true story. Wait, I was um, just like, wait, 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 someone <laughs> in a bar who wants to be adopted. But OK, I got but it. I know, who knows somebody case, who's pregnant? It wasn't yes. a single mom by choice, but the, the hopeful adoptive mom had been whining that she, you know, it's taking too long. Her husband was in a bar talking about his wife wanting to adopt and that, you know, it hadn't happened. And he Uh, was standing next to a man who said, well, I know a woman who's pregnant and is thinking about placing for adoption. And that's how the connection was made. See, that's like what you call amazing fate, right? Like that was meant to be, that guy was meant to go to that bar that night. That's pretty awesome. I call it the big mouth theory. Like when I'm talking to my (laughs) clients, I'm like, you need to have a big mouth. And a lot of times people are very anxious. They don't want to tell everybody their business. They, you know, whatever the reason is they want to adopt. They just don't want to tell people. And I'm like, look, you don't know who knows who. Uh And if you don't say that you want to expand your family by adoption, your sister may know somebody, but you haven't told your sister 
or your sister hasn't told your college roommate or whatever the case is. So, you know, you have to um, get the word out there that you're looking because you don't know where that match may come from. But you may have a match that's not through a traditional agency, like you find it some other way is my point. And then we might bring an agency in to do the social work, which is called a, uh, agency assisted. It is not as expensive as an agency adoption because they're not making the match. They're only doing agency assisted. Also, some people use consultants. Some people use facilitators. Facilitators, by the way, are illegal in about half the states. So don't sign up with a facilitator until so you So what exactly legal. is a facilitator? Can facilitators you... basically advertise for the connection of um, pregnant women to adoptive parents, right? Okay. And so <clears throat> they're sort of the middlemen, I would say. Um, and Frankly, I've always been amazed that agencies never figured out how to do it as well as the middleman have, but they have. And so for adoptive parents, they feel very strongly in using facilitators because the facilitator basically is getting paid to find you an expected mom. And frankly, they spend a lot of money on IT so that they pop up first and so on and so forth, where agencies tend to have the philosophy that we're trying to find a family for the baby, not we're trying to find an expected mom who's having the baby for the family. So um, people often hire facilitators because that is exactly what they're looking for, is the expected mom who's going to have a baby in the match. And they want to pop up at the top of the internet. So, so Angela, I know um, we talked a little bit and you were saying that there are various ways that you can go about um, finding um, hopeful expected moms. Um, am I using the terms correctly? And the mother, you, yes. Mm -hmm. Mothers, right? And you said that there, there are different ways and some of them are non-traditional. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. And if I could just make a, a quick point to double down on what you said something earlier, Aisha, and reflecting mm -hmm. on what Michelle said, which, by the way, Michelle, great overview of kind of the, the three kind of main paths to adoption. Um, but I did want to underscore specifically because we're talking about facilitators, that that's one of the things that is not legal in every state. So that's one of the, you know, that's a perfect example of what you articulated earlier that um, you can't assume that um, you can always use a facilitator. But to answer your question directly, Aisha, about websites, I mean, what you're talking about is uh, self-matching, right? So if you don't use a facilitator, if you don't use um, an agency or an attorney, uh, it's becoming more and more popular for people to say, you know what, let me bypass that part of the process. And by the way, they're usually, particularly for using an agency, is an associated match fee, if you will. So it, it is a way, which I know we'll, we'll probably get to, to um, mitigate the cost of the adoption is to self-match. So it can happen serendipitously the way that Michelle uh, told that great story about the guy in the bar, but it can be more proactive uh, as well. So there are actually lots of websites that are out there that um, really it's kind of akin to uh, a dating site, if you will, um, but it's about matching a um, perspective or a, a HAP, a, a hopeful adoptive parent um, with uh, an expectant mother. So just like you would on your website, excuse me, just like you would if you were using an agency, you create a website that um, has a profile. And on that profile, it's going to have pictures of you and your family. You might have a picture of your, your pets, things that you like to do. Uh, you'll be able to write a little biography about why you wanted to adopt, et cetera. And often you will include what sometimes people 
people call a dear expectant mother letter, which kind of says, this is why I'm hoping to uh, adopt. And you will pay a monthly fee for this. And usually you have a way that that expectant mother can communicate with you, whether it's um, a separate adoption email. Um, some people will set up, and I did this, uh, a separate 1-800 number. So there's no fee to the birth mother. And then, or even texting, um, which a lot of them um, prefer to do. And, and that's um, the route we went as well. And then you can start communicating uh, and decide whether or not it's something that you both are interested in pursuing. So it's... Um, it's, it's an interesting and kind of modern way of, uh, of, of meeting um, a potential match. Yeah, so I have yeah. a quick follow-up question to that. Like, I wonder, how, how do women go about protecting themselves, you know, if there's no, like, adoption agency or potential middleman? Like, how do you ensure that you're talking to, like, a real person <laughs> who actually is not catfishing you and actually, like, you know, is an expectant mother who's looking to to partner with an, somebody who wants to adopt? So this is a big question. I think we probably both want to answer this. So I'm going to answer it briefly. And I, I'm sure Michelle's going to want to jump in on this one. So adoption scams are real and they happen all the time. Um, there are people who will um, try to uh, financially scam you. Um, but the, even I think the worst ones are emotional scamming where they pretend to be pregnant. I mean, there's even websites out there where you can make a fake sonogram, et cetera, et cetera. So part of the ways you protect yourself, um, for example, if you work with an agency, they're going to train you um, on things to listen for. Um, and that's also part of their job is to help vet that um, perspective um, uh, expectant mother in terms of being able to show proof of pregnancy. Uh, and the other thing that um, I found very valuable is that there are actually all kinds of websites and also Facebook groups specifically dedicated to ending adoption scams. So hopeful adoptive parents will share information um, and try to identify folks who are um, known scammers. But Michelle? Um, all of that information was great. And I can only add that I think that one, you should get an adoption professional involved immediately. Um, so you can make that match, but as soon as you make that match, you need to hire either an adoption agency, social workers, adoption lawyers, depending what the scenario is and what the state law is. And what I have discovered is beyond the fact that some of us adoption lawyers actually are connected in networks and have the ability to talk to each other to try and um, avoid some of the scammers. The other thing is, is that most scammers will disappear real quickly if you start asking the questions that professionals start asking. And, you know, when the proof of pregnancy, they're, they're able to spot it better than um, people who've never been pregnant before, for example, right? And so yeah, they're likely point. to call for the medical records and they're going to send the form out for the HIPAA release. And when they won't sign the HIPAA release, which is the release for medical records, that's usually a red flag that, you know, there are no medical records anywhere to take care of this. Um, plus they want to meet you in person. And so I've always found like when you actually visibly see someone, you have an opportunity to talk and it's harder to, you have all the, the um, nonverbal cues as well as the verbal cues, and it's easier to find things. There's other things you can do too, like look for um, in their area, go to Target and see if they're registered for a baby shower. 
If they're registered for a baby mm -hmm. shower, they're probably planning to parent that child as opposed mm -hmm. to place that child, things like oh, that. That's, that's an excellent um, point. I wouldn't even think about that. That's awesome. Yeah. So, and those are the types of things that, you know, a lot of adoption professionals would know anyway. Yeah. Um, but the, sometimes, you know, a good scammer is a good scammer. And even with adoption professionals, sometimes they're going to slip through. Um, and that just happens. But the more you, I mean, I think that's one of the benefits of openness, the more that you get to know this person, the less likely you are to um, not realize if it's a scam. So I just wanted to circle back to with addition to the um, connections through the websites that you pay a fee. One of the other things that is popping up now is there are Facebook groups for expected moms to meet hopeful adoptive parents. And there is a new one for African-American um, expected moms to find African-American families that has popped up on Facebook. There's a lot of other ones, too. Um, and if they're done correctly, the moderators will allow the expected moms in and will post for them because there's always that real fear that the hopeful adoptive parents will pounce on any woman that comes in there and says, you know, I'm thinking about placing. So the really well moderated ones have made some good connections. Okay. And then, all right. And so... We covered um, one one way, um, one pathway to adoption. Uh, you said there were three, um, foster care and then international adoption. Yeah. yeah, can we go to foster care? Because I did, foster care was the one that I considered um, the, the most deeply. Um, I had conversations and I really, you know, talked through and really looked at my life to see how that might fit. Um, could I do it? And I got stuck at the home study because I've got a two bedroom apartment. I've got um, my daughter is in one room. And, and, and from what my friend told me, I would have to position myself to be able to um, take, um, uh, do an intake, I think, if I'm using the terms correctly, um, kind of like, you know, kind of quickly. And then I would have to have myself set up um, to have either um, a, a male child or a female child. Um, and so I got kind of stuck there. Well, foster care is a complicated beast because it's different in every state and sometimes it's different in every county. Mm -hmm. So the first thing you have to figure out is in your local area, can you do a straight adoption from foster care where the parents' rights, the biological parents' rights have been legally terminated? Okay. Um, that's what most people who are looking to adopt want. Mm -hmm. There are people obviously who really want to foster. They have no intention of adopting they want to help a child out and a family out during a period, and hopefully that child will be um, reunited with their family. Mm -hmm. But there are other people who are definitely looking for adoption. So you have to figure out if your location will do an adoption that um, the parental rights are legally terminated. If not, you're doing what's called foster to adopt, okay. which means that the biological parents' rights are not terminated and that that child could be reunited with their family at any point. And it's important to understand that the purpose of foster care is reunification with the family. The hope is that whatever uh, was the reason that that child was removed from the home, that that can be fixed 
right? And that that, ho- that child can safely be returned to that home. Mm-hmm. Also, the law provides that if the child can't go to the mom or the dad, that they're going to look at grandparents, aunts, uncles, anybody who's biological family first. So when you're fostering, that child may show up at your house. And then, you know, two weeks later, they figured out who the auntie is and that child's going to go live with the auntie. So all those things have to be taken into account with foster care. Yeah, I actually, um, you know, I, I love the idea of foster care because I love kids and I want to help kids. And even if that, you know, means that I wouldn't be the parent, I would just be the foster parent for a period of time. I worry that I would get attached and, um, it would be really hard for me to send a child back to a situation that I might feel is not safe. Um, I had a friend who was an SMC or is an SMC and she was fostering a child that both of the parents had their parental rights severed, but four years later, someone in the family showed up uh, and wanted to adopt. And so a child that she had had from birth who called her mom uh, all of a sudden was was going to a different family. And it was super heartbreaking for her and also uh, the other children in the house because they identified this little girl as their sister and she identified her as her daughter. And so it, it just felt like a, a loss for that family. And then, you know, also our entire community because, you know, she she lost her child essentially. So I think definitely with foster care, you know, to Michelle's point, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a risk or uh, a complicated and SMC should, should be aware of the complications and the laws in their area before they decide to take on that um, particular path. Yeah. I mean, that's an unusual circumstance where the social workers did a lousy job, to be honest, because you should be able to find family in a shorter period of time than four years. That being said, she's not the only one that that's happened to. And I would say that at least 40% of the kids, if not higher, actually do reunite with their family. Um, My guess is more 60 to 70%, to be honest. So that's a lot of, a huge chance that the kid will be going back. Um, Older kids are less likely, you know, because they're more likely to have their rights terminated. But that's the other thing, when you go into foster care, newborns, you know, you can get a kid zero to 18, basically, when you're going into foster care. If you're talking about domestic infant adoption, you're basically talking about a newborn. So one of the choices you have to make is, you know, do I want a newborn? Do I want a five-year-old? If you want a five-year-old, you should be doing foster care or international, right? If you want a newborn... (laughs) You might get a newborn through foster care, but there is no guarantee. In fact, most, I won't say most, but a lot of foster care agencies will actually tell you they have no newborns. And the reason they tell you that is because they don't want you coming in and using them as an adoption agency because they really are a foster care agency. Mm -hmm. That being said, obviously there are newborns that come into foster care agencies, you know, especially if you have a mother who's like on her third child that's going into the system they're going to catch that child at the hospital and that kid will go directly from the hospital to the foster family. And if there's no reunification and she's already lost two kids to the system, so there's a good chance there won't be a reunification. You will get a newborn. Um, But this, it takes a lot longer. Um, When it comes to foster care, you're dealing with someone 
who has generally 18 months to do whatever she needs to do to fix the problem that had her children removed, where when you're talking about domestic infant adoption, you're talking about a woman who contacted somebody to say, I'm thinking about adoption and I want to place my child. So there is a time gap usually between when the baby is born and when she signs the papers, but depending upon revocation, if there is or isn't, and and a few other things, you're talking like two weeks at most, um, with the exception of maybe Pennsylvania, um, where when you're talking about foster care, you may be in limbo for you know, technically 18 months, but I know as a lawyer right now, I have a case where the kid's been in the home for four years, came as a newborn, Mm. two more siblings have arrived and we have not done the adoption yet. And it has to do with the agency. So some people, when they go through foster care, it's a long time, but here's the benefit. And here's the difference. Domestic infant adoption, there's a fee attached and it can be quite expensive. Foster care, no fee attached. Um, They're going to give you a medical card. They're going to give you a subsidy after the adoption, which usually includes a medical card, a monthly payment like you are a foster parent, even though it's a subsidized adoption. Um, And they may pay your legal fees too. So, you know, it's a much more um, financially desirable spot for a lot of people to go through foster care. On the other hand, it takes longer. I mean, from my perspective, every adoption has some pros and some cons. And what may be a pro to one family may be a con to another family. And so every single um, hopeful adoptive parent who's going through this needs to assess what's really important to them and, you know, what works for their family. So, and thank you, thank you, Michelle. Um, so, Angela, um, mm-hmm. how how long how long was the wait for you? What was your experience? Um, could you um, share a bit of that? Yeah, happy to. I mean, and that's almost always like in the top three questions that people ask, right? Um, if I'm pursuing domestic infant adoption or international adoption, how long is it going to take before I become a mother? And the answer, quite frankly, is it depends. Um, it depends on a lot of things. It depends upon which route you choose. Um, as Michelle was just articulating, if you go the foster to adopt route, and again, the goal is reunification. I mean, you may never adopt through the foster to adopt system, up to the foster system. Um, and because of um, everything that the um, uh, birth parents um, are going to go through, you know, it could take years in court cases and, you know, could take quite a while. Um, so I know more personally, um, having researched international adoption, what that's like, but also um, having gone through domestic infant adoption. So, um, and also kind of inherent within that question is not just how long does it take, but um, are the wait times any different for people of color, specifically MOCA SMC? So I can kind of address both of those. Yeah, that'd so be great. I, yeah, I think, um, I mean, I, I actually am fortunate to know about five or six other uh, MOCO SMCs who have adopted, one who I knew in my church growing up who really inspired me to do it, um, and then several who are, you know, my contemporaries and our, our children are all friends and play together. So um, one of them um, uh, started the process with an agency and brought her son home 
um, who was, I think, about a year old within two months. I mean, it was lightning fast. Oh, wow. um, that's like, do you have time to get a crib fast? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's, that certainly happens. Um, but I would say that it's not the norm. Um, I mean, it's really hard to say, you know, exactly, but I would say on average, maybe, and Michelle probably has more stats on this, I would say um, between six months to two or three years, I think is probably average weight. Um, but when we say it depends upon what route you which route you choose, um, it'll also depend upon your um, risk profile, if you will. Um, and I kind of make this analogous to if you go to a financial planner and they say, oh, you know, are you young? Do you want to have an aggressive profile or whatever? Mm-hmm. When you pursue domestic infant adoption, they will ask you um, what risk factors you are comfortable with. So things like, you know, does the birth mother, um, does she, has she been drinking during her pregnancy? And was it during the first trimester or all three? Or does she smoke? Or, mm-hmm. um, you know, what kind of other behaviors has she been involved in? Does she have... Uh, a family history of, you know, physical or mental illness, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to, you know, uh, with an agency or with an attorney, consider all of these risk factors, gender, et cetera. So basically, the more open you are in that risk profile, the quicker you'll adopt, So the more boxes you check. If you say, oh, I only want a perfectly healthy, you know, girl from, you know, this state or whatever, well, then that's going to, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, considerably um um, narrow your options and most likely lengthen your weight. Um, and then the to the part of um, MOCA, SMCs, um, waiting longer, um, I mean, sometimes um, single hopeful adoptive parents of any race um, may wait longer, um, but not necessarily um, uh, MOCA. And what I mean by that is you can imagine there are a lot of um, expected mothers of color who are looking for families of color, whether it's a single adoptive parent or, um, or a couple or a family. And because there aren't as many of us available, because as Michelle talked about, adoption is often cost prohibitive, um, sometimes we'll get snatched up pretty quickly um, when, you know, we've been through the whole process and have an approved home study. So I actually matched only a few months after going live with my agency, ended up choosing not to go forward with the first two, but it was it was within three months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then ultimately, um, the match that um, led to my son uh, was a, a year and a few months later. And I think that's probably about average. Okay. Um, Michelle, I want to go back to something that Thank you, um, mm-hmm. Angela. I uh, just want to um, mention this before I forget it on the tip of my brain. Um, Michelle, you mentioned um, that there is a Facebook group. Um, what's the name of that Facebook group? The name of the Facebook group is Black Families Hoping to Adopt Expected Mothers Seeking Black Families. Okay. And this Facebook group was created by a Black adoptive mom sometime last year in 2020. Um, so that Black expected moms could actually locate Black families. Okay. Uh, because one of the things that has happened, so I've been, in, I've been an adoption professional for long enough that I remember when Black families would get snatched up in about two weeks. I mean, if you waited oh, longer wow. than six months, that was extreme, right? Um, these days, you know, to say two years is probably about as long as I would expect anybody to wait that's Black. But part of that also depends on some other factors that Angela highlighted so well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but this one of the things that has happened is because now transracial adoption has gone into the stratosphere and that so many people are now willing to adopt black babies that were not willing to adopt black babies 20 years ago is that it's gotten really frankly competitive um and there's a bunch of other things that have shifted over the last two decades too so when an agency actually gets Black families, when I'm talking domestic infant right now, they sort of hoard their Black families. Like they, you know, if, if agency A has a Black family, but agency B has the expected mom, they often don't talk together, right? And Which so is totally what unfortunate. is agency B never shows that Black mom and expect, um, expected mom Black families, even if that's what she wants. Right. And so what's happening is, is that people have decided, well, we're going to figure out a better way to do this so that black women who are making this option can do this. So I did want to pivot back to um, Angela on that. Right. Because I think that there is this myth in the adoption community that, you know, black families, black singles, black SMCs, black people don't adopt black children. Can you um, talk a little bit, you know, to that? Because as far as I've seen with my own eyes and my own communities and social circles, Black families, Black singles, we absolutely adopt Black children, want Black children. Um, so this is a myth that I'm thinking is because of the the, the money-making industry that is um, domestic infant adoption that gets perpetuated. Yeah, I think that's fair, um, that it is a myth that's perpetuated. I think that um, most myths or rumors are, are originally based in some type of truth. And I think maybe years ago, families of color were more likely to have unofficial kinship adoptions, making meaning we would just, you know, take people in and not necessarily, you know, go through the the, the legal process to adopt those children, but to to raise them officially. But I think that 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 marker that Michelle gave about maybe 20 years ago, I think a lot of things changed and there are quite a few families of color um, who adopt, um, as well as, as I mentioned, I personally know um, several other MOCA SMCs who have, and um, whether or not it's what Michelle was referring to because of the, the, the outright competition and the fact that adoption is a business or, or whether or not it's because it's cost prohibitive, um, which I know we'll get to, um, in terms of, you know, uh, uh, pursuing domestic infant adoption uh, or um, a, a, a combination thereof, um, I, I think it's, it's, it's a frustrating um, myth that perpetuates. And, you know, that's part of why we're having this conversation to, to get people to realize that it is a, a true and viable option for MOCA SMCs. I just want to add that why it's true that African-Americans have always done kinship adoptions or taken in other people's kids. We've also always done formal adoptions. I like to refer to um, John Johnson, the publisher of Jet and Ebony, and his daughter is an adoptive child. And she's now, I think, in her 60s. I mean, we've been doing this forever. But the thing is, we are not... Um, 
we don't stand out. And so I think part of the reason this myth occurs is because when you have these commercials and everything else with white people with kids of color, it's very obvious that an adoption has occurred. But when black people adopt kids, you know, we're used to families that are all different skin colors. We don't necessarily always look alike. And so the adoption occurs and nobody knows that the, the adoption has occurred. So we sort of hide under the radar. And there actually is statistics with um, foster care adoption. And we adopt more than white families. Black families adopt 17%. White families adopt 12%. And I don't remember the stats. I actually just saw them recently for domestic infant adoption too. Black families, we adopt a lot. But the other problem is that because of, I would argue, systematic uh, racism, uh, there's a lot of kids who also get placed and or taken away by child protective services and are not returned to their families. So therefore, there are more kids in the system or more kids to be placed than we can actually adopt. And therefore, there are a lot of transracial adoptions. So this conversation has made me think a lot about like, you know, the protection of children. And I feel like this could be a whole nother episode, but I just, you know, I feel like there's probably so many reforms that could happen um, with regards to adoption laws that are, that would be more protective for kids. Um, but I, I do, before we wrap the show, I want to go a little bit into cost because as you guys have been talking, I've been thinking like, okay, you know, I'm here with my like geeky calculator thinking like, okay, that's expensive. That's going to be expensive. Oh, here's another cost for the attorney. Um and so I wanted to mention for, for, for women listening that oftentimes companies are starting to provide adoption benefits. And so it's part of like the overall parental benefits, but maybe separate from like where you might look for fertility benefits. Um, I know a lot of tech companies are starting to do this. And even if the costs don't necessarily cover the whole thing, you know, if you're getting $10,000 from your company, you for sure want to check into that before you um, start to shell out any money. Um, do you guys, can you guys give us a, 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 an understanding of kind of the ballpark? I know that Michelle spoke a little bit to the fact that foster to adopt might be more, um, uh, might be more fiscally <laughs> responsible perhaps, or like, or, or, or um, easier to afford for many families. But if, if a, if a woman chooses not to go to the foster to adopt option and they want to do um, direct infant adoption through an agency, what, what is she looking at with regards to costs? I would say that the average adoption in 2021 for most agencies are going to run you somewhere between 30 and 40,000. Holy cow, that is a lot. Ouch. So now that ranges. So I saw an adoption today that was 10,000, right? Um, but there was no, they made the placement mm. themselves. They made that match themselves. So they didn't pay an agency. There are some small agencies in the country that charge a little bit less. And there are agencies that are now up to about 50,000 too. Now, part Holy of the cow. reason is, is because mm -hmm. You know, two decades ago, an agency would give you a fee, and that was the fee. Everything was included. Now what's happening is you have these um, piecemeal situations. And so they give you a fee, but then the birth mother expenses are outside of the fee, right? Which is and like, I mean, 
there's no cap, right? I mean, that's well, it depends. So depends some states state. have, yeah, some states have caps. Other states have, like, we have reasonable living expenses in a certain time frame. Um, and then there are some states that, yeah, there are no caps, and whoever can pay the most is, you know, in a better place can make that match. Wow. Um, so it really ranges. But the other thing that's changed is if you go back two, three, four decades ago, your birth mom was usually a 16 year old who got pregnant and was still living in her mother's house, in her father's house. So mm -hmm. she didn't really have any expenses. Your average birth mom today is probably going to be somewhere in her 20s. She's probably already parenting a child, maybe two children. And she is a grown woman with grown woman expenses. So we're talking rent, we're talking utilities, we're talking food in a way that we wouldn't be talking about the 16 year old who was still that was still in their mother's house. So that's a reason that, you know, part of the expenses have gone up. The other thing is, is people are crisscrossing the country to match. So every time someone matches outside of their state, they have to hire a professional in that other state. They're paying the birth mother expenses if there are any. Not every birth mother or expected mother has expenses. Um, and so, but if she does and you're paying her lawyer fees, you're paying the professionals to, you know, get all the health records, you're paying for her utilities, you end up paying a lot of money and she may not place. And then you're at another state six months later. So, so if you up. go through all of the expenses and then she changes her mind, you don't get a refund for that, do you? Um, not for the expenses. Now you may get it wow. like depending upon uh, like some lawyers, they'll have a $5,000 retainer and they've only used 2000. So you'll get some of that money back. Um, so sometimes or the agencies will continue to work for you because the home study is still useful for the next adoption. But her rent is it's gone. You paid for it. You have to think of it as a gift. And that's why you really need to know what your budget is and not pay for something you cannot afford. If you can't afford it as a hopeful adoptive parent, it's not a good match for you. Right. So thank you, Michelle. Um, and so, Angela, um, was your so what was your experience like um is there something that you you want to add um that mocha's yeah mm -hmm. i would add um, a couple of things about finances i mean everything michelle said um is is exactly accurate um i would add that um there are you know different ways to finance an adoption um and it is something you have to plan for, just like if you were planning to do IUI or IVF, right? You have to figure out kind of what your path is and what your comfort level is. So whether that is, you know, your your savings, which, you know, most of my adoption was financed from uh, um, a sale of, uh, of a piece of property. Um, sometimes people will borrow from family members. Um, as here already mentioned, sometimes they will have employer funding. Um, sometimes people will borrow from their um, retirement. Sometimes people will use credit cards. Sometimes people will do uh, adoption grants. There are many of them out there. Um, sometimes they will do a GoFundMe account, you know, church fundraisers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the, the one other point that I wanted to make was um, specifically, uh, oh, and the adoption top tax credit, that's right, um, which is um, something that you can apply for after you uh, adopt and get um, $14,000 back uh, federally. But the other point that I wanted to make, the last point I wanted to make about um, 
financing adoption is if you choose to work with an agency, one of the things that I recommend that folks do is to ask how their fees are structured. And Michelle's right, they are tied to specific events and whether or not you have to pay the fees multiple times if you have a disrupted adoption, because most people will have a disrupted adoption, meaning you match and then it doesn't go through because you change your mind or the uh, expected mother changes their mind. So one of the key things for me when I chose my agency was, okay, I have like my setup fees and I have my um, uh, home study fees and then there's an actual match fee. I only had to pay that once. With other agencies, if you match and the match falls through, then you'll have to pay another match fee. So that's another thing to ask about to make sure that you're not basically double dipping. That's a really good point. Yeah. So I, I think we're going to um, start to wrap, but I think this conversation could easily go on for another hour, hour and a half. And we actually have a part two um, to the adoption um, episode where we'll go into a bit more detail. Um, but before we um, start to close out, I did want to ask Angela and Michelle if you have any tips or pointers for Mocha SMCs looking to um, kind of scratch the surface about adoption at their at the beginning stages of of thinking about it? For me, I mean, I guess this would be my advice afterwards too. find your village. Um, so from the beginning stages, you need to find your village of hopeful adopted parents. Um, there's tons of Facebook groups. There's obviously the Mocha Moms. Um, you want to find that community that understands what you're going through and looking for, and you're going to have to sort of weed out some groups, mind you, on Facebook, but take that time and do it. I think it's also really helpful if you find people in real life. Um, and then the next thing to do is to talk to an adoption professional. A lot of people spend a lot of time spinning their wheels. And I'm like, come talk to me for an hour. I have a whole spiel I can give you for an hour for a one hour consultation fee, right? Mm -hmm. And it will narrow down all the things that you have to think about so that then you can come back to me. And if you're local, I'm going to say, Hey, these are the two or three agencies I think you should go talk to. Right. Um, but people rarely, I usually see people on the back end, not on the front end. Uh -huh. And I can narrow that focus quite quickly because I know the Chicago market. I know the Illinois market. And to a certain degree, I know outside of my state too, because people are crisscrossing. But I really think that people need to lean on their adoption professionals more. And please do not take legal advice on Facebook. The amount of people <laughs> take oh legal gosh. advice on Facebook is beyond, it's just mind boggling. And there's so much just bad legal advice the other thing is, is there's so much legal advice that just doesn't apply to you. So people conflate foster care and domestic infant adoption all the time, or how foster care works in California has nothing to do with how foster care works in Illinois. But I'll be an Illinois parent and I'll ask a question and I'll get the answers from California, North Carolina, and Texas, which is irrelevant to me. Mm -hmm. So like if you want to do foster care, find your state foster care adoption group on Facebook and most states have one. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Um, and, um, and Angela, my advice to a prospective um, MOCA SNC who, who wants to uh, pursue adoption, I would say just don't be discouraged. 
Um, the adoption community, as you've heard in this conversation, is it's it's complex and it's expensive. And a lot of people say that it's you know it's it's not for the faint of heart um, because of all of the roller coaster. But people could say the same thing about you know pursuing IUI or IVF. And so I would say we are out here. Um, there are there is a, a strong community. I 100% agree with Michelle to 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 build your tribe, to build your village, and don't be discouraged. I mean, if if you go to a adoption seminar and you're the only Mocha person sitting there, it doesn't mean that there aren't more of us out there. So you know, stick with it and and keep searching and and reach out and find folks like us because we've been through it and and we're all passionate about helping other people who are coming after us. Well, thank you, Angela, um, Michelle. Um, do you, how, how can people reach you if they've got questions, um, just general questions, if they're in the Chicago land area, um, how can they reach you? Usually the easiest way to reach me is by phone, 312-857-7287. Um, and you can email me too, HughesLaw at mindspring.com, but I generally prefer a phone call because these types of things, uh, need a conversation to go with it. Um, but either of those two ways. And until recently, if you Googled Michelle adoption attorney, I was the only one that popped up. You probably now have to put in Michelle Chicago adoption attorney, but I'll pop up. You can find me. That's I'm also awesome. a member of the Academy of Adoption and Assisted Reproductive Technology Attorneys. Um, and so you can find me through their website too. Wow, that's so awesome. Thank you so much, ladies. This has been such a great conversation. Yes. So um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, If you like what you heard, please stay tuned for part two of the adoption episode. Um, And then in the meantime, please check our resource page. We'll have, um, we'll cover some of the acronyms that were covered in this episode. We'll have Michelle's contact information um, on the research page as well. Yes. And so if you like what you heard, please share with your social media, share with your grandma, share with your mom, share with your friends, share with your coworkers, and then also follow us on Twitter at Mocha SMC, like our Facebook page, um, find us on Facebook, the Mocha SMC podcast, um, visit our website, www.mochasmc.com and join us next time when we continue to discuss this often hilarious journey as a black single mother by choice. Bye, everyone. Bye now. Bye. Bye. I I just want you guys to know, did you see me get water?